some things. He established uh, rulership and practices of the Greeks on the Jews, something that would be very offensive to the Jews in the temple. This would have been the, the, the biggest affront that the Jews could have imagined. He set up a statue of Zeus right in the temple where they were to worship Yahweh alone, have no other gods before me. That's this the very first commandment. And then this emperor, he dares to set up Zeus as a false god in the temple. But not only that, he set up a statue of himself and then mandated that the Jews sacrifice pigs, which, by the way, would have been extremely offensive to Jews, and they sacrifice pigs in the temple to the king, who's a false king. This, that had an effect on people. They didn't like that very much. They couldn't imagine anything more offensive. And, and to the Jews, that was the most offensive thing that could be done. And so there, there came this groundswell, um, and there rose up a man called Judas Maccabeus, and he led a rebellion, and, and they waged a guerrilla warfare and defeated the generals of Antiochus. And after several times of defeating him, finally they kicked him out, and so... Around the 25th of the Jewish month of Kislev, which generally maps onto our month of December. So sometimes that's about the 25th of December, based on lunar cycles, so it's a little different than our months. They succeeded in taking back Judea, and they, they cleansed the temple. They rededicated the temple. They made a way for the Jews to come and worship God because they could not come and worship God in a defiled place. They made a clean place to worship God. They cleansed, they cleared out the temple. And the legend was that they, they found a small container to reignite because they were supposed to light this, this candle or this uh, oil lamp in worship to God and it was supposed to be lit as a menorah and they, they could only find enough oil that was supposedly for one day. And so they took this one day of oil, but it lasted eight days. And so now today the Jews celebrate this as Hanukkah when God provided miraculously for them, he delivered them from their oppressor. He provided a way to worship in the temple and he gave them light. And John, I got, I got to think that he has this in his mind because he's done this every time. Every feast, there's some symbolism that John wants the reader to think about. And so Jesus, he is now, says he's walking in the temple at this time around winter and he's walking after the feast or in the, during the feast of dedication. Perhaps it was meant to point to Jesus who self-consciously was the hope for deliverance, the one that they were hoping. The Jews had hoped that Judas Maccabeus might be the Messiah, but he was not. And so ever since then, they had wondered, could there be a Messiah? Who might be the Messiah? Is the Messiah coming? When is the Messiah coming? Will he deliver us from our oppressor fully and completely? Judas Maccabeus, we celebrate that, that he delivered from the oppressor, that God delivered us from the oppressor through him, but who will deliver us ultimately? And now Jesus is walking in the temple, and you can see that this is on the hearers' minds. They're wondering this because that's the question that they ask, and they are in suspense, and they say, don't keep us in suspense. Don't make us wonder. Why are you keeping us on pins and needles, basically, is what they're saying. Don't keep us in suspense. Are you this person? Are you the oppressor? You're coming right now. Visa of dedication. You're coming back. We've seen all the miracles you've done. We've seen all the massive things you've done, testifying of God. Could you be the one? And so Jesus, he, the one who would make a way to worship God, who would clear out all the defilement from the temple, and dwell with his people forever. He's walking now, and I think that is intentional of John setting us up like that. 
As he walks around, this crowd gathers around him. He become well known by now since this is about two years and eight months or so into his ministry, somewhere around that. It's only four months before he will go to the cross. And he's walking and they have expectations. They've seen him. They've seen what he can do. They've seen tons of miracles. Too many to count is what John has already told us. They have their own expectations about who Jesus might be. They have their own expectations of who the Messiah is. And this heightened period that they're in right now, they're looking. And actually, one of the prayers they would pray every night was, Lord, thank you for delivering us from the oppressor. Deliver us from the oppressor. And they had in mind Rome. They had in mind all the Gentiles around them. But clearly, they wanted Jesus to answer them on their own terms. They wanted Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that they wanted him to be. And, and it seems that John, he is pushing something for his hearers. You see, his hearers, they have, a, they have insight here that the original people in this setting did not have, but the people hearing, reading the book of John here, it, it brings up a lot of questions. And I think the biggest question that John means for us to answer, to be confronted with, is will you believe the plain truth about Jesus? Because if you're reading so far in the book of John, it's evident, wait a minute, no one else can do these things. No one else has the power and authority no one else can speak and somebody is healed from afar without him even being there. Nobody else can do the miracles that Jesus did. Nobody else can, can make something out of nothing and feed 5,000 twice. Who is Jesus? Will we believe? Will you believe the plain truth about Jesus? That's the big question that John has for his hearers. And it's the most important question. And we see here this, this contrast between two kinds of people. We, we see a contrast between the people who come to him and they actually refuse to believe. And then at the end we see the second group of people who do believe. And so John is wanting to see, where are you? Do you believe? Will you believe the plain truth about Jesus? Will you believe, be those who reject the plain truth? Or will you be, be those who believe the plain truth of Jesus? And if so, it has the most important consequences. Will you believe the plain truth about Jesus? Look down in verse 24. It says the, the Jews gathered around him and they said, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long are you gonna keep us hanging here, Jesus? We've been waiting. It's, it's been two, and eight, two years, eight months or so, whatever it's been, and we're waiting here. We've seen you work miracles. You keep coming back every feast and you keep telling us that you're the son of God and, and, and who you are and that you're from the Father. And yet, you've not really said those words. We're looking for those magic words. I am the Messiah. But yet Jesus, he was hesitant to use those ter terminology because it had a lot of baggage for them. And right now, especially, it was steeped with all of the pressures of, of being a political rescuer. And Jesus is telling them, you don't need a political rescuer. That's not a reliable Messiah. Maybe that's a message we can hear today, too. He, he's telling them that not only do you not need a political messiah, you, you don't need a, an earthly king, you don't need an earthly ruler. Your most important need is not to throw off the injustice of the Roman Empire. He doesn't want them getting the wrong notion. He doesn't want them getting the notion that he's just a man along the lines of Judas Maccabeus, even if he's just a more significant man. And so he avoided any association with the ideas of the Jews that they had of a political military ruler perhaps like Judas Maccabeus had been, but he never hesitated to reveal who he was. You see, all of his miracles, everything that he did, a testified of who he was. No one in all of history ever did all of the miracles, the scope and the extent and the frequency of the miracles that Jesus did. And if you're reading through these eyewitness accounts, 
You need to answer that question. Will you believe the plain truth of Jesus just as they were confronted? And that's what he confronts them with in this passage too. He had declared already to them, I am the bread of life. He revealed to them, I am that I am. He's, he's already revealed at least five of his seven I am statements. He's used the exact same language that, that God himself used to reveal himself to Moses when he says, I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the self-sustaining one. And he says, I am that I am the light of the world. I am that I am the gate of the sheepfold. I am that I am the good shepherd. We'll see in following weeks that he will declare who he is as equal to God in every way. And the Jews had already understood that he was making himself equal to God. They had already at one point picked up stones to stone him. And they do that again in this passage. So they weren't unclear about who Jesus said he was, but the question is, would they believe the plain truth of who Jesus is? That's the question that we're confronted with as well. Will we believe the plain truth about who Jesus says he is in our daily lives, even when he's not the king we want him to be, when he's not the kind of ruler we expect him to be, when things don't work out the way we think he should, when the Messiah doesn't relieve us from political tyranny, when he, he leaves us in earthly oppression at times? Will we believe the plain truth of Jesus? He delivers from oppression, but maybe not in the way we expect or want. So Jesus answered them. Look down at verse 25. He answers them, and he corrects them here. He says, I, I told you. They said, are you the Messiah? Don't keep us in suspense, Jesus. And he says, I told you. It should be clear to you from all the things I revealed about who I am, and yet you don't believe me. And then he says, not only that, the works, here's how I've told you, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. Jesus wasn't saying, yeah, I'm the Messiah, because if he'd done that, they would have gotten the notion that he was the kind of Messiah they wanted. He wasn't also saying, I'm not the Messiah, but he's saying, no, you, you should know this because I've, of the works I've done and what I've already declared. But sometimes, like them, we doubt too. We struggle. We struggle with, will we believe that Jesus truly is who he said he is when life gets difficult, when things get tough? Will we believe this? When he doesn't meet the expectations that we have for him, and Jesus gently says, I told you who I am. And the question is, will we believe? They had expectations of the kind of Messiah he should be. And then in verse 30, look down in your Bibles in verse 30, it says, he said, I and the Father are one. So he says, I already told you, and not only that, the works I do, they testify all about me. And then, in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. He is making it absolutely clear. He is God himself, one with the Father. And what did they do? Look down your Bibles. They pick up stones to stone him. That's a, you can't think of a more graphic, personal, intensely violent thing. They were insulted that Jesus would claim to be God. But he made a statement that could be more plain about who he is. He says, I and the Father are one. Like the way that a uh, commentator named Leon Morris, he put it when he says, that he says, they had asked Jesus for a plain statement of his Messiahship, and they got more than they bargained for. He was too plain for them. He was far too plain for them. And yet they're confronted. Will they believe it or not? These Jews clearly did not. Look in verse 21. They picked up stones to stone him. They understood what he was saying. They just did not like it. 
They got that he was making himself out to be one with God. Now, they incorrectly assumed he was making himself out as another deity along beside God. And he's saying, no, I am, I am God. We are one in essence, one in unity. Two persons, one in unity, one in unity of essence and purpose and will. One of, of action. And then they pick up stones, and so Jesus... He's not flustered. I love the response of Jesus. He's just not flustered here. You don't see him getting angry. You don't see him being afraid. You don't see him shaking or nervous. You see him very confidently saying, I've shown you many good works. Look down at verse 32. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? All the good works that Jesus did were from the Father. He healed all who were sick and all who came to him. No doubt countless thousands. He made the blind to see. He fed over 5,000 on two separate occasions. These are historically objective, verifiable facts. He healed the lame. He opened the ears of the deaf. He cleansed the leper. He made the paralytic to walk. He brought the dead to life. All of these attested to the truth and validity of who he said he was and who he is. And so Jesus, in fact, is saying to them, he says, isn't something wrong with your religion if... You want to kill somebody who does the very work of God. Isn't there something wrong when you want to kill the one who heals and makes the lame to walk and the blind to see? Do you really want to put a stones against me to, to stop the works of God? Is that what you're stoning me for? And it has an effect on them, but they still don't believe. Look down at verse 33. They said, well, it's not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, listen to this, because you being a man make yourself God, there is massive irony in this verse. Look in verse 33. He says, you being a man make yourself God. Here's the reality. He's God who made himself man. Jesus was no mere man who made himself God. He was and is God who made himself a mere man for us to rescue us from our oppressors. And although those, you know, he is in fact God, he humbled himself to become a man, to save humanity. Now, in verse 34 to 36, at first it can be confusing. Um, look down your Bibles. He's, he is quoting here from Psalm 82, 6. Psalm 82, 6, it's, it's speaking of those who are judging kind of in God's place, and so, in effect, they are like gods. And so, in Psalm 82, 6, he says, I said, you are gods, and so, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And so Jesus is actually quoting Scripture. He's using Scripture to back up his own claims. And, and the logic can, can be lost sometimes if you read it too quickly. But what he's saying is, if Scripture, which can't be broken, which is never wrong, inerrant word of God, if, if Scripture said that it used a comparison and says, some of you, you're like gods, although they weren't gods, they were just mere humans. And if, and if it was okay to make that comparison, then, then surely it's okay to, as the Son of God, to claim to be God. And that's not blasphemy. Because he says, I am him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. If it was true in relation to mere men that it, that it wasn't blasphemous, then it's definitely appropriate for Jesus to say that about himself as somebody who is with God, the very Son of God, sent by God. And then especially, look down at verse 37 and 38, especially because he's proven it and he's demonstrated it publicly who he is by the mouth, the scope of the miracles that he performed. Jesus wasn't making himself out to be somebody he wasn't. He was right to claim he really was who God testified he was. 
And Jesus goes on to say, if you don't believe, look down at verse 37, 38, if you don't believe the works that I am doing are in keeping with the character and nature and power of God, then, then sure, you can say you don't believe in me. But if you see that the works that I've done, they're consistent with God. They can only come from God. If, if I do these works, even though you don't believe me, believe the works because nobody else could do those without being attested or sent by God. He says, at least believe the works. Start there because they testify that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. But they didn't like that, but they seem to have at least been challenged enough to put down their stones and now they go to arrest him. And so you see though that they were unable to do that. In verse 40, we see the response instead. Jesus goes away. Somehow, it doesn't say if it was miraculous or he just kind of escaped or he went out, but we know it was not his time. In verse 39, it was not his time. So he went out from there. He was not stoned. He wasn't arrested and they weren't able to lay his hands on him. He, he escaped because God was holding him. And the result was he went away again across the Jordan, a place where John had been baptizing at first, and he remained there. And many came to him, and they said to him, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Jesus went out to the edge of the desert. He was across the Jordan. He wasn't accepted in the temple, the very one who is the temple, the very one who's the embodiment of God's presence, walking with God's people was not accepted in the place they were supposed to come to meet God's presence. And yet, across the Jordan where John the Baptist had started his ministry, people outside, people on the outskirts accepted him. Why? John the Apostle writes that because they believed that, that Jesus was everything that John said he was. Many believed in him. Back in verse 26, Jesus told the Jews in the temple that he didn't believe because they were not his sheep. Now let's look back at verse 27 to see John's second point. He is, he is the second idea that we need to get. He wants his readers to answer not only the question of, will you believe the plain truth about Jesus, but then he wants his readers to know something. He wants his readers to know that all who believe, all who believe belong and are kept secure. All who believe belong and are kept secure. Look in verse 26. He says, but you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep, here's the contrast we see between those who believe and those who do not believe. He says, my sheep, those who believe, they hear my voice. Look in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He was telling the Jews, you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. He made it clear He's the good shepherd already, the ultimate shepherd that Scripture looked forward to the Messiah being. Yet they didn't believe because they refused to be shepherded by him. And so they were not a part of his flock. At the same time, they had not been chosen by God to be a part of his flock. Both are true. In contrast, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. If, if you have heard the voice of Jesus speaking, if you've placed your Hope, however faulty, however flawed, if you place your belief in him, if you are following him, no matter how badly you're trying to follow him, how inconsistent you are, you are known by him. 
All who believe in Jesus Christ are a part of his flock. All who believe and follow him have him as their shepherd. And here's the guarantee to all who are sheep of his flock that Jesus gives us eternal life. Look down in verse 28. If you are his sheep, if you've believed in him, if you're following him, that means you've heard his voice because you cannot be made alive without hearing the voice of Christ speaking. There cannot be belief without hearing the voice of Christ calling and making alive. And yet, so if you are believing and following him, he's, his voice is spoken to you, he's made you alive. And look in verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, you can't give something you don't have. You ever had somebody try to give you something they don't really have? You know, I can't give you something I don't possess. Imagine that I came up to you and said, I'm going to give you that mansion you've always dreamed of, but I don't own it. You kind of scratch your head and look at me funny because I, I really couldn't give it to you. I don't own it. I don't have the ability to give that to you. You can't give something to somebody that you don't have authority to give. If you were a prisoner in jail, I could say, I, I give you freedom. I could visit you there. I could say, I give you freedom. And then I walk away and you would not be free because I don't have that authority. Only one who has the power over eternity, only the one who holds the authority over life and death, over who lives and dies can give eternal life. And so Jesus is saying a lot of things here. He's saying I, because he's able to, he is granting eternal life to all who are his sheep, who all who believe and follow. And then he makes some wonderful promises. Here's the shocking thing. It's not dependent on the consistency of the sheep in following. The reason why the sheep of the good shepherd will never perish, he says, is because Jesus is the one who gives them eternal life. It doesn't depend on them. It's a good gift from him. That's good news for you and me as sheep, isn't it? The good news for the believer suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's or some other disease where you might lose your minds entirely one day is that it depends, the eternal life depends on the good shepherd giving it. And you maintaining that depends on being held by the good shepherd. A hired hand, a bad shepherd, would flee when the wolf comes and abandon the flock. So the sheep would be snatched by the wolf. We, we saw that last week in the passage, but with no shepherd to protect them. But Jesus, he's telling us again, reiterating what kind of shepherd he is. He's the good shepherd who will not, look in your Bibles, he will not allow any of his sheep to perish. I want you to ask something. Which sheep will not perish? Which sheep will not perish? Oh, his sheep. Who are his sheep? Oh, those who know his voice, who hear his voice, who he knows, who follow him. And he, what's the promise? No one will snatch them out of his hand. A couple of weeks ago, our family was taking a, a walk down at Cedar Falls Park alongside the Reedy River there. And um, there are different places where you can get very close to the water. Um, it, it, the Reedy is, is quite wide there and, and it's, also really shallow, so it, runs, it rushes pretty quickly there. 
And there's a couple places where logs have fallen down and go out to little islands. And so you can go across these logs that are six, seven, eight feet above the water, um, above the water and rocks. And you can go across these logs and go to these little islands. And my family's adventurous. We love to do that kind of thing. And so um, Joshua, he went out there. He's a teenager. He's, he's able to do that. He went out there. And, um, but when, when Eva said she wanted to go out there, I said, okay, sure. Well, hold my hand. Now, when I asked her to hold my hand, I wasn't really relying on her ability to hold my hand. But it was more for her, for her comfort, and for the reality is that I was going to hold her hand to make sure she was kept safe. And so, we started going across the log, and I was holding on to her, and I have this way that I hold my kids' hands that I kind of hold down below their hand like this and kind of hold on to their wrist so that if they let go, I'm still holding them, and I can, I've got something that, to pull against, and it's a, it's a firm, secure hold. It's like a comfortable vice grip. And, and so I'm holding her arm like that, and we're walking across the river and you know, on this log, and, and the water's rushing, and there's, it, we're at the place where this kind of falls down a little bit. And so if you fall, you're going to get hurt. And so we're walking. She got a little nervous, and she slipped, and she fell. But Eva's with us this morning. <laughs> She's not banged up. She didn't get harmed. Why? I was holding her. As soon as she slipped, what I did, what I've done hundreds of times with each and every one of my kids. I, I, all of my kids have had the same kind of scenario or something like that when I've caught them and pulled them up. And so because I was holding onto her securely, I just picked her up and then I walked across the log with her feet above the log and then I pulled her to me and then I, and I put her safely on the other side. Even though she slipped off, even though her hand actually wasn't really holding mine because she got nervous and she wasn't really holding on to my hands, my hold was firm when she fell. And, and that tactic has proven to be good for, for all of our children with waves and all kinds of stuff. Um, I'm holding on to them. They think that they're holding me. That's, that's good. It makes them feel better. Jesus is saying he holds his sheep in his hand. And no one, no wolf, no predator, no devil, no demon, no one will snatch his sheep from out of his hand. You might feel like it. You might stumble. You might slip. You might fall. But here's the thing. It doesn't rely on our grip. We're held by him. If you've repented, if you've believed in Jesus, if you're following him, then you have heard his voice. You are personally known by him, and he holds you. Look at the words that he uses. He says, my flock. These are personal words. This is not distant. He knows you. My flock, my sheep, I know them. If you have chosen to believe and follow Jesus, he knows you. You are his flock, his sheep. No one can snatch you. Why? Because John's already told us who he is. He's the creator of the universe, the one who spoke and eternity began, the one who was in the beginning with God, the one who was God, the one who is God, the very word of God, the powerful word that created all, who knew you before you were born. He, he holds you in his hand. And you can be sure of his ability to keep you. And he tells you why. Because God, who has all authority... Look down at verse 29. My father, here's why, I hold them and my father who's given them to me. 
So God has the authority to give and grant people. So God has granted, if you believe God has, then we can be sure that God has given us to Jesus. And here's the other thing we can be sure of. He's greater than all. Father God, who is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Think about it. Who's greater than God? The one who is prior to eternity, who's always been self-existent, who has no beginning and has no end, who created all things, the one outside of time and space, holding all time and space. He says nobody is greater. He's greater than all. No power, whatever power you're thinking of in your life that you are terrified by, that you're concerned about, no principality, no nation, no weakness of your own, no person, no spiritual being, no devil, no demon, no enemy. God's greater than all. When I was little, I remember playing a game with my dad. I would, I would sit with him and he would, he would put a coin in his hand and he would grab it and he would say, okay, get it out. And I would be like two or three years old and I would try to pull on his hands. You ever done this before as a parent? Maybe it's just my dad and me. I don't know what mean or something. I don't know. But I would try to get it out of his hand and I would try to pry open his fingers and I could never do it. I just couldn't open his hand up and I couldn't get whatever treasure he had. I, I couldn't get it down there. He, he was strong, much, much stronger than me. I was a little child. He was a grown man. He also worked construction at the time. His hands were very strong and, and I couldn't pry his fingers open. And so that's kind of the vivid imagery. Is, is Jesus is saying, God is greater than all. He's holding you in his hands. No one can take it. Who's strong enough to open God's hands? Is what he's saying. No one. No one can snatch anything from the Father's hands. Nobody can pry the Father's hands open. That's ridiculous. He's much stronger. He's greater than all. If you've been given to Christ as his inheritance, then you are the sheep of his flocks and you belong to God. Your eternal life, hear this, your eternal life as his sheep. Listen, I want you to look up just for a minute. Your eternal life and your remaining in the Father's hand, it does not depend on your feeble hold. It's wholly dependent on his grip of you. You're his possession, and no one can take you from his hand. No one has the ability to open God's hand. Not even you. It doesn't mean we're not going to experience earthly disaster. It doesn't mean we're not going to experience illness. But it means that despite any disaster, despite any illness, despite any weakness, our eternal life is kept secure in him. The goal of Jesus was for people to believe in him, that they may have eternal life and be preserved as his sheep. But we must believe. What are you believing in? Yourself? Your ability to keep you? Your faith? We don't believe in our ability to hold ourselves, but his ability to hold us. The fact that if we believe and follow him, then we're his sheep. We've heard his voice. He's made us alive and he keeps us. And here's why you're kept secure. He tells us at least three different ways that we're kept secure in this passage. Because the Messiah is one with the Father. The one who came to rescue you from the oppressor, he's one with the Father. Not only that, he is the Son of God with all the authority of God the Father. And because everything that, that John the Baptist has said about him, it's true. It's been proven out to be true. It's objectively, verifiably true. The plain truth of Jesus is clear. Will you believe the plain truth about Jesus? And if so, you're kept secure. 
the contrast here is stark. This feast of dedication, they would, at, the, at the end of each day, they would pray, God, deliver us from our oppressors. And then the deliverer walks among them. But he wasn't the kind of deliverer they wanted. He didn't deliver the way they thought he should, and, and so they didn't believe. And in the end, the place where they, it was meant to welcome God's people into God's presence, when the very presence of God walked there in person, they rejected him and refused to believe. And then ironically, out in the desert, the place away from Jerusalem, the outskirts, they believed that Jesus was truly the Son of God. And they're welcomed into his presence eternally, kept secure. Do you believe? If not, then you do not have true life now. If not, then you are not secure. If not, you'll die in your sins. But if not, you have a chance now to believe the plain truth of Jesus, to respond, to hear his voice, to believe, to choose to follow him. And then you be kept secure believing him. But if you have believed, there's a wonderful promise for you here. I love the way that J.C. Ryle puts it. He says, Christ declares that his people will never perish. Weak as they are, they will all be saved. Weak as they are, by the way, are you weak? I am weak as they are, they will all be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven. If they err, they shall be brought back. If they fall, they shall be raised. The enemies of their soul may be strong and mighty, but their Savior is mightier. Believe, not trusting your ability to follow him, but in his ability to keep and hold you. And here's what I'm asking to everybody here who does believe. Don't be content with just mere belief. Continue to believe. Continue to seek him. Continue to follow him. Grow in your belief. Keep on believing in him. Keep refusing to believe lies and keep believing the plain truth about Jesus. Seek to know him even more as you are known already. Seek to know him as you are known. Hunger for him. Pray that you might believe. Like the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Grow in him. Know the good shepherd. He loves you. Rest in his loving embrace. If you believe, then he holds you fast. I want the band to go ahead and come up and we'll, we'll close with a song. It's called He Will Hold Me Fast. I want to read the words to you as they're coming up. It says, when I fear, my faith will fail. And by the way, that's, that's pretty often. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Let's stand and sing.